0: Our Old Testament reading comes from 1 Kings 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Although I am only a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Our gospel reading, I'm sorry, is from Luke or Matthew. I don't have it up here, sorry. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Luke. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, And I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quiet quickly and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat, he said to him. Take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, think on this story that Jesus gave his disciples, that we would know how we, uh, as followers of Jesus, might apply it to our lives and think about um, what the story has to teach us about the way we steward our lives as a part of your kingdom. So will you meet us in these words of scripture we ask this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to imagine something. You're in a room and you are with a friend, and the friend, you have another common friend who's not in the room with you, <clears throat> and you start to have a conversation with that friend, with the friend that's in the room with you, and you're talking about the friend that's not in the room with you, right? Have you ever done that? You know, you've talked about someone that you know, a common friend, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's some a colleague in the workplace, and you're just going on, right? You just proceed with your conversation, and some, you know, maybe it goes in some healthy directions and maybe it goes in some negative directions, but then the door opens and your friend that you're talking about steps into the room. How does it change the conversation, the words you say? Uh, do you invite the other person to speak for themselves, to express their own agency, for example, right? Of course you would, right? It changes the conversation. Now, Leslie Nubigan. Uh, who was a, a missionary in India for for decades of his life, and later, in sort of at the close of his life, was a pastor in London. He says that this is a wonderful analogy for how we might think about Jesus, because essentially, what's happening in the incarnation of Christ, right, is that God is in person in our world, and so the challenge that sort of emerges in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is, well, what will people do with God in person in our world, where they let God speak for Himself, where they let God, will uh, challenge the way we think about Him, the way we imagine Him, uh, and that comes into the sort of Jewish community in a certain kind of way because they have lived with the Scriptures and a, a long history of sort of living life with Yahweh, right? So, so how will they receive Jesus? Will they understand what he's saying? Will they let him sort of shake their world up? And it relates to things that, uh, as you think about how, how would the Gentile world relate to Jesus? Or how would um, the sick uh, relate to Jesus? And just you could go on and on. How will we let God shake up the way we think about life with him, life in his world, life with one another? And the parables we've said, are one of the teaching tools that Jesus drops into very often when um, he wants to shake us up, when he wants to sort of dislodge our taken-for-granted assumptions about the world, about ourselves, perhaps, about, certainly about God. Uh, and so the parables sort of move us and invite us to think in fresh ways. Now, the parable that we just read, the story of the unjust steward, is a story that Jesus offers, it seems, primarily to the disciples, right? Although we'll find out as you continue to read in Luke that it seems like the Pharisees are lurking in the background, listening in on some of Jesus' teaching. But the reference point seems to be principally the disciples, those persons closest to Jesus, right? So, this is is about formation. It's about their discipleship? Will they let Jesus shake their world up? So he's not here principally sort of pushing on the Jewish world and their struggle with him, but he's pushing on the disciples and their, perhaps, their struggle with him. Now, obviously this is told to the original followers of Jesus, the people, the men, the women who were getting close to him, who were following him around. But Luke includes it in his gospel story of Jesus because he obviously imagined that that encounter that Jesus had with them was important to the early church, and it's important to us. As we think about what it means to belong to Jesus, to let him form and shape our own lives as disciples. And I think you could almost say, I think this this could be pushing it, but I'm going to push it, that this is a parable about faith and work. It's a parable that pushes us to think about how we live vocationally and how we live inside of our stewardship of wealth and resources in the world, your various vocations, whatever they may be, right, your various uh, descriptions of wealth, the comprehensive quality of your wealth. How will you let your life with Jesus change the way you live with things inside of this world this early life? And here's the thing about this parable. It's weird. It's hard. Um, You know, and so someone came up to me before and said, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say about dishonest wealth. How interesting. (laughs) Literally, unrighteous mammon, if you will. This is a strange story that Jesus tells, and yet he tells it to the disciples to help them think about their life with him inside of this world. One commentator said it was an incomprehensible parable. I mean, you, know, you just keep, kind of pick up the commentaries, one after the other, and they almost all lead with that observation of this is strange, this is, hard to, this is a hard teaching, it's hard to know exactly what to do with this, and so on and so forth. Now, so what does Jesus want the disciples to learn? Is he, for example... So he's saying, if you find yourself in this very unfortunate situation where your boss is about to fire you, you might figure out how to take the books and rearrange a few things to make a provision for yourself. Like, is, is that what Jesus is going for here? That sort of embezzlement is a prized attribute of someone in the church? Probably not. So let's take a stab at, at it, and it is a stab, believe me, but let's try So I was looking at uh, Craig Blumberg, Rachel's father's uh, uh, commentary this week, and I I appreciated one of the things he observed was just simply this. There's a little bit of comedy in this, and I think that's the first place we need to start, right? There's some irony, there's some sarcasm, there's something weird, and we just need to sort of let that genre sort of lead us in, in a sense as we think about what this might mean. Now, so here we are. There are three movements, right? The rich man and the steward the steward uh, and his interactions with the debtors, and then we're back again at the conclusion of the parable with the owner, the rich man, encountering the, ma- uh, the steward once again. Now, so first, the master, or the rich man, and the steward, round one. There was a certain rich man. Now, okay, rich man. From this story, uh, as the story unfolds, we'll see this in just a moment, this man's very rich, like very rich. Uh, This is not an ordinary estate, and so when we get to the point of the debtors in the story, uh, these aren't like how we might conceptualize tenant farmers. These would be like sub-estate owners inside of a larger estate, like these folks were wealthy too. In other words, this is one massive organization. This is a massive landholder, right, that we're meant to sort of understand. So this rich, that's the rich man. This rich man, he owns a lot of property, uh, and someone comes to him and says, hey, your, your steward, your manager, your agent, who the guy that sort of goes out into your world and speaks in behalf of you and acts in behalf of you, he is squandering your wealth, in other words, there's some sort of embezzlement going on here. There's some sort of mismanagement, serious mismanagement that's going on. So, what does the guy want to do? He calls. He calls his steward in. And he says, "It's time. To l- let's do an audit. We're going to do an audit, and you're going to lose your job, right? We're going to do an audit, and you're going to lose your job." So, movement two. The manager um, recognizes rather quickly, right, that he's in trouble, uh, and he tells us a little bit about that trouble. He's old, right? He's too old to do manual labor, right? I I can't do that. I can't go dig ditches. And uh, he's too proud. In other words, his station in life is too great. He doesn't really want to give up a great station in life. He's too proud to beg. He doesn't want to sort of take a step down. Uh, So what will he do? What should he do? So very quickly, He comes to the conclusion that what he needs to do is he needs to call in all the debtors, right? In other words, all these persons that are a part of this larger estate who work the property, who own the smaller farms, with the larger farms inside of the large farm, right? So he calls in the debtors, these uh, tenant estate holders, and he begins to systematically, one by one, reduce and forgive portions of their debt, right? He rearranges the books. He cuts off portions of the debt. Now, The scale is enormous, and Jesus, in telling of the story, only gives us two accounts, right, of two of the debtors in view, right? One, he he owes 100 jugs of olive oil, and we think, 100 jugs of olive oil? You know, is this like a Trader Joe's bottle of olive oil? That doesn't sound very very massive to me. So uh, the, the measure that's being used, there's some speculation that essentially this was probably somewhere between 800 and 900 gallons of olive oil. One commentator suggests that this could be would, would, would be the product of about 150 olive trees. So, so you're beginning to sort of put it in a scale, right? We're talking about a 100-acre estate with olive trees, right? A massive olive grove that is producing this amount of, um, of olive oil. Uh, three three years' wage on average, right, of, a, of an average typical day laborer. Another owes 100 containers of wheat or... Um, translate this into something that may be a little bit more meaningful to us. Perhaps this is something like 1,100 bushels of wheat, probably enough to feed 150 people for a year. All right, so again, enormous, right? The scale is huge, and of course, it's a story, and you're meant to sort of begin to go, ooh, ah, you know, this is what we're supposed to do when we hear this story. We don't because we think, oh, yeah, you know, a sack of wheat or, uh, you know, a bottle of olive oil. But, but we need to sort of blow your mind up here a little bit. The guy begins to go through the books and rearrange and restructure the debt in these tremendous ways, right? And um, now look, we immediately have a question, right? what is your question? My question immediately is, hey, is this legal? Like, how did this dude get away with this? This doesn't seem right. This seems wrong. It seems ridiculous, right? Of course, that's kind of where our minds go. Um, And, you know, Jesus doesn't really answer that question. He's not really interested in that question. I'm sure we could sort of corner one of our biblical scholars in the room later. Uh, Cindy's over here, by the way. Um, And, and you know she can sort of tell us a little bit more about that, whether or not it was legal or not, but what Jesus seems to be interested in is just this very simple point that this man was crafty and shrewd in the way he lived inside of his world. In the way he lived inside of his world, in other words, his aim here at this particular moment is just very simple. I can't dig ditches, and I don't want to beg. How do I find a home? So he begins to sort of engage Sort of the the, the ethic of his world, the ethic of reciprocity with regard to hospitality. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. My generosity begets generosity. And then I'll have a home, I'll have a place to stay. So something like this. Sure, I'm going to be unemployed, but you know, the Smiths have invited us to stay at their place in the Cayman Islands, darling. I think we'll be just okay. Okay. And after that year, you know, John and Sally, they've off their ranch in Jackson Hole. You know, that's a pretty nice place. And just so on and so forth, right? So in other words, this man is sort of deploying the ethic of reciprocity. He's acting on the reality of the way business and life and social life and cultural life operated inside of his context. And um, that's the story. Now, the final movement, the master and the steward, is this. We think that the master should show up and say, you can't do that. But instead, the master shows up in this story, and he praises the man for what he's done. He praises him because he was shrewd. And then we get a little bit of commentary further around that. Jesus seems to comment that the sons of the world know how the world works. The sons of the world know how their world works or how this generation works. And again, he's speaking about life inside of this moment in time, this broken space of human life. This guy got it, and he knew how to work it to his benefit and his advantage. But then Jesus leaves us with this question. What about the sons of light? What about the sons of light? In other words, disciples, what about you? What about those of you that claim to follow me? What about you that are trying to structure and restructure your life in terms of relationship with me? Do you get the way the kingdom of God works? See, Jesus uses this story, I think, analogously, in order to ask this very simple question of his followers. Are you similarly shrewd in the way you live inside of God's kingdom? Do you let the ways and the means, the practices, the the sort of values, the reality, the weight, the wealth of all that God is doing in the person of Jesus reshape the way you live life in this world now? It seems like that's what Jesus is doing. Will you let your relationship with Jesus change the way you steward every other aspect of your human life? Your wealth, comprehensively, your relationships, your vocation, your family of origin, your friendships, your choices about how you spend money, and just so on and so forth. Will you let the reality of the wealth of who God is toward you and Jesus reshape the way you live your life in this world? Will we take God seriously at his word and all the things that he's revealing in Jesus? Will we bank on him, so to speak, if you want to put it in financial terms? Now, before we finish, notice how Jesus applies this parable uh, to this, this parable I've called faith and work. Notice how he applies it. Jesus very specifically digs in to questions around wealth, right? He's pushing his followers, uh, his people, to take him very seriously, and he wants us to think very specifically about our stewardship of all of life, but specifically how we steward our wealth, your time, your talent, your resources. Your time, your talent, your resources. How do you steward these realities inside of this world, right? Whatever that wealth is, whatever your relative wealth is, whatever you have, you have in this particular present moment, right, what Jesus here refers to is your dishonest wealth. Now, I don't, we don't like that Jesus calls this dishonest wealth, I imagine, and almost immediately our mind probably runs to if I'm going to call something dishonest, I'm thinking about things like embezzlement or I'm thinking about wealth that's achieved through ill-gotten means like, you know, a drug lord, for example, you know, and we could just sort of come up with all of the different ways that we might imagine uh, sort of illegal and compromised ways of achieving wealth for ourselves in this world. But that doesn't seem to be the way Jesus is referring or using this language. He seems rather to simply say, your wealth, whatever it is, however you've achieved it inside of the space of this generation. How do you steward it? How do you live with it? Your dishonest wealth. It's a gesture toward whatever you have as a result of your life in this world. Whatever you have, whatever you bring with you, your limitations, your opportunities, however you, whatever you have, however you would co- sort of conceive of your resources, your time, your talent, your money what system of value orders the way you live with it is it the space of this sort of broken world the generation that's passing away or is it the kingdom of god that is coming in jesus does that reshape and restructure the way you live with wealth what relationship shapes the way you spend what you have Verses 9 to 13 seems to be a further commentary on this parable or as Jesus continues to draw the point out, presses the point further and further home until he finally concludes and just very simply reminds us that you can only have one master. You can't serve God and money. Just very simply, that's where Jesus leaves it. In other words, What is the greater love in your life that orders every other thing you love in life? What's at the forefront? What relationship matters the most to the way you live with every other dimension of your human life, every other space of desire, every other space of love that you might possess? What love orders the way you put it all together, the way you sort of make decisions in the context of everyday life. Now, you know, here's the thing. Every single week, what do we do in worship? We confess our sin. Do you know what that is? It's that moment where we sort of just hit pause and we say, you know, my loves were really disordered this week. (laughs) Some other love trumped God's love. Some other love sort of got in the way of how I ordered all the other loves. And it's just that moment where we try to be transparent about that. We try to be vulnerable about that. We try to be honest about that. We try not to pretend that somehow we've got it all together and figured out. And we certainly try not to pretend that we are wisely at the very center of figuring it out. But we just very humbly come back to that space before the Lord where we say, you have loved me in Jesus Christ with a dying love and affection. And I want to want to be a person that lets that love shape the way I love every other thing. That's what we do at these moments of confessing our sin. We just come back to the story of who Jesus is. In other words, we begin at that moment, right, just to begin to bank on the truthfulness of what the story of the gospel is. And we say, I'm going to try again. I'm going to go for it again this week. You know, I'm going to to go out into the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because you have loved me. And I want to reflect your love back into the world. So Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by your dishonest wealth so that when it's gone and it's spent up, they may welcome you into eternal homes. I wonder if in that very obscure, weird statement that Jesus makes, if he isn't saying something like this, look, the manager in this story, he spent his master's wealth to make friends for himself. He deployed his master's wealth to make friends for himself. What about you? What about you? Will you let the wealth of God toward you in Jesus order and challenge and change and shape the way you live with your earthly wealth? Whatever it is within the physical space of your actual life, your relationships, your work, your neighbors, and so on and so forth. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was empty, and it was void, and God was pleased to fill the earth with beauty, with plant life, and with geography, and and with the beauty of a climate, and with, uh, and with animals, a rich animal life, right? And And with people who he was pleased particularly to breathe his own spiritual being into. He was pleased to breathe his likeness into the world that he had made into people like us. But the story of scripture and certainly the story of Christianity is just very simply this that you and I are badly disconnected from that. We're disconnected from his presence. We're disconnected from his spirit so that we've been born into a world that, that is broken and badly broken. And guess what? We collude with its brokenness. We reflect it back into the world so that the systems we built, right? The families we've created, you know, there, there are moments and pockets of joy and beauty in every family, but there, there, there are these Vast spaces of desert, vast spaces of wasteland, where it is very possible to even grow up in the best, most loving family and feel unloved. And the world that we've created as these families have sort of multiplied generation after generation and generation into the world is what? We've built political systems and societies, societal systems that are badly broken and ruined, tremendous inequalities. And the inequalities are not just sort of racially based, but they're also economically based. So the individuals approach whatever they have, not as stewards that they have something that has been given to them or that they offer back into the world, but rather what do we do? We hold our property, we hold our lives as if it's just ours to hold. But the story of Jesus is that God has stepped into the room, and in his likeness, he reveals to us what God is like when he's in the room. And so what Jesus is asking the disciples to think about here is, will you let the likeness of Jesus himself reshape how you think about your own stewardship and life? So think about your personal story for just a moment. Is there something sad in your story? Like when you reach back into your story, you, do you hit those snags of, that are just really hard to look at? I just spent a year taking marriage and family therapy courses, sorry to force this upon you, but one of the things that's meant for me is just this, is thinking and rethinking and rethinking, and I'm just tired of rethinking, honestly, my family of origin story. But a Christian is someone who begins to rethink their family of origin story in light of who Jesus is. So that you live with the pain differently. Instead of the pain, you begin to recognize that God meets you in the pain. And He says, You know what? The pain isn't the final reality on your life. My presence is. I'm present to you in your story. I'm your rescuer, I'm the lover of your soul. How do you steward your personal story? Have you learned to inhabit it in a way? That your memories, rather than leading you into places of avoidance and denial and further frustration and further anxiety, that in fact, your story actually is a place in which you see and behold God loving you, God holding you, God carrying you, peace rather than pain. The way we steward our life vocationally, right? This is the biggest place for us, I think, because we go into life and you think, and some of you, you know, we're sort of moving toward that college moment, right? When all the students will soon be back, right? Yes, the, the, the space right here will be filled very soon. And, and, and what do we do the moment we think about our college lives? What are you thinking? Well, what am I going to be when I grow up? Vocation. What is my work? But let me expand your view of vocation. What are your various colleagues in life? You know, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I've been an educator, I'm a neighbor, and I could just keep going down the list of all the different things I do as a human being in this world. What do you do as a human being in this world? You're a son, you're a daughter, you're an aunt, you're an uncle, you're a grandparent, you're a teacher, you're a physician, you're an administrator you clean streets. What do you do as a human being in this world? And what would it mean for you to begin to steward that space, as ordinary as it may seem to you, in terms of your relatedness to God who has breathed life into you through Jesus, so that your life rather than being an extension of the brokenness that just keeps multiplying the brokenness in one sector after another, that your life actually becomes a means by which God breathes life into the brokenness of the world because you're there. The way you steward your wealth instead of fear, like Jesus, who though God didn't grasp after his godness, but he emptied himself in service unto death. See, Christianity is about our reconciliation with God so that we become his presence in the world in fresh and renewed ways. And we live as neighbors differently, and we live inside of our families differently, and we live inside of friendships differently, and we live inside of different vocations differently, that we become persons and places that give back. Let me leave you with one little quote. Roland Williams Says that one of the greatest paradoxes of Christianity is that you and I only learn to live in heaven in the presence of our Maker, Savior, and Lover. When we learn to live on earth here and now in inhabiting the space in which God has placed us. What about the sons of light? how will they steward the rich presence of God that they've received because of his love for us in Jesus? How will we go out into the streets of Philadelphia, into our story and our work, into our neighborhoods, where we shrewdly embrace the ways and the means of God's kingdom as we steward our wealth? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we know uh, that we steward it poorly. And so we confess our sins week after week and day after day, acknowledging that our lives are more ordered by disordered love than anything else sometimes. But you're the God who keeps seeking us and who keeps finding us and who keeps pushing us to imagine you differently, to really let you speak to let you have the agency that is only yours to have. So we pray uh, this morning as we think on these words and we think about them in the context of our everyday living that you would, by your Spirit, push on us again and you would remind us that you love us and you would soften us and you would help us to run to you and receive you. Lead us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.